0: I'm going to be looking at Genesis 38 this morning, and word of warning from the start, you're going to need the Bible in front of you. It's a large passage, and I'm going to be jumping around a whole bunch, and so we decided to forego the the screen versions of these things this morning. But Genesis 38 is an interesting insertion into the story of Joseph. And I tell you, it's interesting because last week we started out with sort of a series within a series. We said that this was going to be God meant good. And what we mean by God meant good was this, where it's borrowed from the culmination of the story of Joseph, who un- undergoes suffering and he resists temptation. And the end of all of it, he says, Well, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And we decided, Yes, let's look at the story of Joseph. It's going to be good news in the book of Genesis. We're going to see how God can work things out in spite of human activity and evil. And at the end of last week, there was a pretty dramatic scene. Joseph, who's the hero, he's the guy we're all looking forward to. He's the one you remember from Sunday school and from the movies. Joseph is cuffed in a slavery caravan, being carted off to Egypt, and his brothers are have now enacted a scheme where they've falsely grieved with their father who's ready to die over his sadness from his son being lost. They've stolen away money that they sold him for. And the end of chapter 37 is a sort of grim note and there's some tension in the air. So, what you might want to say is, okay, well, if you're telling Joseph's story, what happens? If he's going to be the hero, what does he do? Does he… Does he figure out a way to make a shim? Does he MacGyver his way out of the slavery caravan? Does he drop kick someone? Does he come back and like show his brothers what's up? How does this go? You might be thinking to yourself, well, where is Joseph's story? And instead, rather than going immediately to follow Joseph, chapter 38 takes a turn. Chapter 38 takes a turn and instead tells us the story of Judah judah the one who decided it's not enough that we just kill our brother when we could make money off of him too and chapter 38 of genesis tells the story of judah and just word of fair warning it's not just a story that's told concerning judah it's a pretty grotesque story in fact one bible scholar and leader of the church in history mentioned genesis 38 and said the interesting thing about this chapter is that it tells a complete history, but instead of glory being revealed or celebrated, it is great disgrace exposed. He says later that any of those who read this tale should feel upon them the shame. So we might ask a few questions. It might be understandable for us to say, okay, uh, we're trying to follow Joseph here. Why are we taking a turn in Judah, especially a chapter that we're going to find out is pretty gory in its details. And the key, I think, to unlocking this, and as I start, I'm going to read a few verses of Genesis 38 as I start. The key to unlocking this is to remember that what we're asking is the same question that's been asked since Genesis 12. In response to the sin of the world, the hopelessness of the world, a kind of world where needed, they needed to be judged by a whole flood, where only sin was the thought and tension, only evil, the thought and of mankind's heart. The response to how is this going to get fixed, God said, well, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to start with the family, and you're going to have to follow the family tree. What they could not have foreseen, what they probably did not know in its full glory, is that God himself was going to insert himself into humanity and be born of a family. But for now, the biggest question over all of Genesis, starting with Abraham, who remember was childless, heirless for nearly the entirety of his life, the biggest question is, who's the son? Who's the heir? Where are these generations of people? More than that, the promise was that from this line, not only would there be a lot of children, but some of them would be kings. They would rule supreme. So we are watching, if you're reading along with intent, the question that's being put forward in Genesis is who is the heir? Where does the line go? Now, when I mean line, I think you can draw a line too, but I mean more like family tree line. Where's it going to follow? Where's the promise going to follow? And for many of us, Genesis 38 is a little bit of an odd turn in the line. If I had to title, it's pretty clear what Genesis 38 is about. It's the line of Judah. That's what we're learning about, the line of Judah. And as we jump in, we're going to have to ask some questions, why Judah? why this chapter, why now, and I'm hoping that we get some answers, that you and I can start to understand and see what it is that God is up to behind the scenes in choosing this. Let me start with verse 1 of Genesis 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers. Now, that time, remember, is just following them, selling him off into slavery. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adullamite, whose name was Herah. There, or Hira, there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kezeb when she bore him. I'm going to pause there and comment on a couple of things. Right away, if you're a reader of the story, when it says it happened at that time that they went, Judah went down from his brothers, it's not a particularly obvious that this is going to be any significant line. Judah was a vocal, conniving part of the story, and he's going to come to some prominence later in the book of Genesis. But for now, we don't know. There's no obvious reason that we follow his line. Reuben was the oldest. So, you might think, well, if we're going to follow a line of the Messiah, the Savior, someone coming from Jacob, who's the son of Isaac, who's the son of Abraham, maybe Reuben, he's the oldest, that's the obvious one. Well, no, it's not going to be following Reuben. And then you might say to yourself, well, wait, Joseph's going to be the hero, right? So, we should just follow Joseph's line because maybe what God's going to do is He's going to see how good Joseph is and we will follow His line. Instead, in God's inscrutable wisdom in what to, appears to us total darkness and misunderstanding we follow Judah instead and what we find is that Judah his characteristics do not commend him to our story there's nothing about Judah right off the start that makes us say ah oh, of course he was chosen in fact just from these verses that we just read it says at that time so at that time remember what he's just done he's profited from the sale of his brother he's pretended to be sad with his father and lied to him bald-faced while his dad wants to die in grief. And then it says, at that time, what does he decide to do? Well, he leaves his family and he goes down to this Adullamite. What it's trying to tell us is he goes to the wrong part of town to the wrong people to find a wife. If you've been paying attention to God's people through history, this is, this is an obvious sign to the reader that this person is rejecting God and his inheritance. The only thing that mattered when you're a family who's going to be God's family is that you stay in a godly line, right? That's the whole goal. You can remember Jacob and Esau. When Esau is so upset about his birthright being gone, you know what the Bible tells us? It says that he went and he found a pagan wife. It's a way to really show your parents, show your mom and dad. So Judah, here's where his line starts out. He leaves his family and goes to the place that he shouldn't go to find wives that he shouldn't have. He went looking for love in all the... Well, you get it, right? That's the story of Genesis in so many ways, right? Not only that, but we hear something about Judah, the assertive one, the businessman. He's going to sell off his brother. He says, Well, let's just not let this happen without us making something. He asserts himself and says, Well, I need to get something out of this, let's make money. It also, surprisingly, tells us not a wonderful love story, a romantic way that he takes this wife. In fact, he seems rather brutal and self-interested. He takes what he wants. Judah's wife, all throughout Genesis 38, she's not even named. We get the impression that Judah, at this particular point in time, is a sort of man who is not interested in his responsibilities before God, but rather interested in his own selfish gain and pleasure. He sees this woman, he took her, he saw her, he liked her, and that's that. Now, he does get sons. He gets three sons out of the deal, which is pretty good considering the difficulty we've seen of sons coming and children coming through the whole of Genesis so far. He gets three sons. The first is named Er or Er. And what I thought in order to really press this home is I could make a pun. You know, Air sounds a lot like to Er is human, right? But we don't even need to make the pun. You know why? Because it turns out people who study and know way more Hebrew than me have pointed out that his name is literally evil spelt backwards. Did you ever hear the story about how back in the day if you played a record the, the wrong way, You know, like if you played a record backward, it would be like satanic chants or something. I think that might have come from here. I don't know. If you play his name backward, it's evil. And this son of Judah is so evil that what we find out later in the text here is that God puts him to death. He's so wicked, God says, enough, you're dead. It's the first instance that we see a direct killing based on evil and sin. So, Judah… A man who just takes what he wants. He has a a wife from the wrong place of a godless family. She's not even named. It doesn't seem like he's very loving about it. The first son is born and dies. Now, here's the complicating factor. Before he dies, he's taken a wife. Tamar is his wife, and she is going to have great prominence in this story. What happens is, is that Tamar now is a widow. She is left without provision, without care, and without, most importantly, remember this is the oldest son of Judah whose line we're following, she has no children. And so, Judah says, well, what am I going to do about this problem? He turns to his next son and says to him something that seemed to not only be customary, but is, can be found in, in Deuteronomy as a part of the law and the way that you would act in a situation like this. I think the idea of brothers taking on the responsibility for their for their sibling's widow is still around in Jesus' day. Remember the questions that Jesus gets? They try to trick him and they say, now what if a man has seven brothers and each of them dies, then whose wife? Remember that? This is happening, same kind of story, right? And so Judas says, all right, so Tamar's in a vulnerable spot. She has no husband, she has no child. You need to be responsible and take care of her. And then, like the wickedness of his older brother, Onan makes a calculation. Here's the calculation Onan makes. He says, wait a minute, my older brother's gone. That means most of the inheritance is going to come to me. I'm already thinking about having some kids. What's going to happen here is that I'm just going to split the pie further and I won't get all the stuff that I have coming to me. Why would I want more children? I don't want to take care of them. So Onan, rather than being direct and righteous and taking on the responsibility that was given to him, he uses Tamar. He consummates a kind of marriage arrangement, but then orchestrates circumstances so that he will not give her a child and will not provide for her or care for her in the way that she deserves. She is being abused in many ways here. Onan, like his father, seems to be interested in the pleasure of the situation but wants to reject any of the sacrifice and will not give her a son. Now, we know this to be a grave sin, a dishonoring of the father of Judah, a dishonoring of Tamar, a dishonoring of the dead brother, and a dishonoring of his own body is what Scripture describes. And we know this to be a terrible thing because... God kills him. What he does is so wicked in the sight of the Lord that he is also put to death. And so Judah's line, are you following this now? Judah's line, the one who wants money for his brother to be sold, who goes away from his parents and says, well, I'll show them, I'm just going to go find a woman over here, then recklessly tries to patch up what's happened with the sin of his oldest son, with his second son, has now lost two sons to overt wickedness. And the Bible doesn't even really leave any sort of room for a different way to explain it in here. There's not much you can, you can't really skirt around the issue when the Bible says things like this, because he was wicked, the Lord killed him. So the line that we're following, it's not glorious. This is why it's led some to comment on this, that it it makes us feel the shame with them. It doesn't end there. Judah seems to be annoyed at this point. He doesn't know what to do, and so he tells Tamar, we'll remain a widow in your father's house until my other son grows up, until Sheila, my son, grows up. He feared that he would die like his brothers. In other words, Judah now is blaming the problem on Tamar. He's like, Tamar, we would care for you, but I don't want to give you to my other son, because my other sons didn't fare well connected to you. So now Tamar is left with an empty promise. She's in a holding pattern and being more or less blamed for the evil wickedness of the sons of Judah. And it's here, in this circumstance, that Tamar comes up with a plan. And I'm going to start reading in verse 12. Of some of her her plan what does she do in this circumstance it tells us in verse 12 in the course of time the wife of judah Shua's daughter died judah himself becomes a widow it says when judah was comforted he went up to timnah to his sheep shears he and his friend this is hera the dulemite the guy I mentioned earlier And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to name, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah... I had a really hard time reading that in the first service. It's like, she saw Shelah at the seashore. There's so much of it. I got through better that time. She saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. I want to pause here for a moment. Because you might say to yourself, well, this is a strange plan to concoct when you hear that your father-in-law is going to go do some farm work. And what it turns out is that this is likely a kind of celebration that this community would have done that had a religious overtone and some idolatry and some pretty gross pleasure-seeking abominations that would happen. In other words, when Tamar realizes, oh, wait, Judah's going up to that festival, This is all in one, some work, some harvest, some celebration, some debauchery with friends, and some religious idolatry likely having many sensual overtones. In other words, Tamar says, oh, I know what this is about. This is Judah going full on into what is forbidden. His wife has died. He has two sons that are gone. And he's just going to go and let loose, including in prohibited worship and celebration. And it is here that Tamar says to herself, Judah must care for his responsibilities. I must be cared for. And so she goes and disguises herself, knowing full well that Judah may come and desire her, that he would see something he wanted and he would take it, much like his wife that has now been lost. And in due time, it's exactly what happens. She ends up negotiating. You can almost see her having to take on the responsibility of what should not have been hers. She, she almost negotiates a dowry. She's super wise here. She says, well, before this arrangement takes place, I want you to give me this signet, this kind of seal thing. Give me your staff. She's gathering evidence because she knows that he may deny this later. And after she has these pledges from him, and after they've had this rendezvous, this illicit engagement, she leaves, and Judah leaves, he's just a little bit confused, like, what happened here, and then months go by. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 24. It tells us in verse 24 of Genesis 38, about three months later, Judah was told, "Tomorrow, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. She's pregnant to the point where she can no longer hide it. And so, Judah says, this compassionate, non-compassionate one that he is, and Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Now, he may, according to what he knew by the letter of the law, had some sort of right for this. But clearly, knowing the circumstance, we're waiting for the other shoe to drop. We're hoping, we're longing for Tamar to be pardoned, And in verse 25, we read this, As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. Tamar fully enacts the plan, and she brings about an undressing of Judah in front of his servants, in front of his household, the people who would have revered him, the people that he was supposed to be leading and protecting and caring for. He is now, in a moment of humility, forced to reckon with his sin. And it is here in this exchange, this is a precursor, don't we? Maybe you know the, the story of David and his sin being exposed. You are the man. This is like a precursor. This is a, a, maybe a lowercase, you are the man but nonetheless has the same impact. What it does is it takes a person rejecting and running from God in the midst of a spiral of sin and it forces them to admit the reality of their life. And what he does in the midst of this, she is brought forward in shame to be burned and what he admits, I think it's perhaps more precise to say, you could say it like this, what what Judah is forced to say in front of everyone is this, she is righteous, comma, not I. There is a stark contrast made here. In other words, she is vindicated. She is said to be right, and He confesses His unrighteousness. These are the seeds of repentance that I believe are going to bear some fruit later in life. But so far, what has happened is it has taken an unbelievably concocted and executed months-long scheme by a vulnerable, Many ways oppressed and abused, daughter in law. This is the way that God has has brought about the repentance of Judah. And then we hear the rest of the story. I'll start in 27 of Genesis 38. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. Again, this is becoming a theme now for these families. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread in his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, and behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread in his hand, and his name was called Zerah. So the answer to where does the line go ends up with these twins, Perez and Zerah, who will show up later multiple times in Scripture but it is not a quick and easy and steady path to get here. The question immediately becomes, why the flip-flopping back and forth, and what is God doing, and why Judah? Reuben was the oldest, and Joseph the favored one, and really the more righteous one. What are we to make of this story, especially when we feel the full impact of it? What we know now, after having read the rest of the story, is that God does, in fact, bring about through these grotesque, crazy circumstances, these people who are not commendable, somehow God brings about the redemption of the world by the birth of Jesus Christ. It's later, if you recall the the story of Ruth, which is itself a sort of kinsman-redeemer story, which is a lot like like Aaron, like Judah's sons, that it is the generations of Perez and Zerah that are referenced in that story. And then we find more clearly in both Matthew and in Luke in telling the the story of the genealogies of Jesus, the thing we rejoice in, how is God to redeem the world? We find little things like this, the third verse of Matthew chapter 1, right there in the middle of all the generations, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar, Tamar. God in His grace, God in His sovereignty, God according to His own good pleasure and will, writes the story that He wants to write. And when we get to this point and we say, well, I don't know what to make of this, why Judah, a middle son, especially a Judah who has such a horrible history, I think some of the answers that we must come to is we don't know. And it's almost as if there are times when God writes the story of the redemption of the world that He wants to remove any possibility that what we would say is, oh, that's understandable, we deserved it. Well, God had to give something good because of how good we were. What God demonstrates again and again and again When he means good, when Joseph is going to say in Genesis chapter 50, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, what we see in that is this paradox where God is so gracious and big and inscrutable in his ways that he's able to bring about his purposes in spite of the sin of mankind. And we see the same thing not only in the sale of the brothers, but in Judah's life as he lives it. How is it that God can bring about the righteous line and bring about the Messiah into the world through this family tree? How is it because God is able to bring good from and through and in spite of evil and fallen humans? If you don't get that story of the Bible, then goodness, don't look around at the world today because there's so much sin and fallenness and horror, you'd be left hopeless. If we don't have a God that can somehow, in the end, bring about justice where injustice is, if we don't have a God who can bring about hope where hopelessness is, if we don't have a God where He can bring relationship and connection and joy where isolation and sadness and complete disillusionment is right now, then we don't have anything to hope in. But we can hope because God can bring about His purposes through Judah and this craziness. The line of Judah is about grace. But I want to say something further about this. In this case, have you ever heard of the, the definition of grace as unmerited favor? Unmerited favor. And I think sometimes that we focus only on that from only one directional, one direction. And I would say that what's being highlighted here in the whole story of the rest of Genesis is what I might call two-directional grace. And here's what I mean. When you read the story of Judah and you realize that he is going to have an opportunity to be redeemed, Jacob comes in later and he promises and gives him the blessing, and he's going to sacrifice himself in the place of his brother or attempt to. Judah's story, as grotesque and terrible as it is, and as there are real consequences for it, is going to be redeemed. And what some people might think is, yes, this is the grace of God. And if you're here today and you look back at your story, you look at your family tree and you think of all the dysfunction If you're the kind of person who says, well, I hear people say God loves me and I understand forgiveness of sins, but I just don't really experience it and I can't really let go. I don't know that God could love me. I think God is, but I'm pretty sure he's mad at me. Then what you might say or what you might need is the grace of God. Judah's line is ultimately redeemed and has hope in Jesus Christ in spite of their sin. This is the grace of God. You can have hope in the Messiah and in the Redeemer despite any of the dysfunction and the rejection and the sin outright and obvious as it may be. And people understand this is grace. But here's the other part about the direction of grace. Unmerited favor also means we must let go of the idea that if we're just good enough that God will owe us. You see, here's the thing about church folk like you and me. Many of us have more or less for a long time tried to do the right thing. We knew the rules. We wanted to follow them. We felt bad when we sinned. And we probably said to ourselves, well, I can give a hat tip to the idea that no one merits God's favor, but if anyone did, I might have. I want to be careful to make sure that what I say about grace doesn't just touch the crazy stories like Judah so that we can all walk out and say, yeah, people like Judah do need grace. You know who else needs grace? People who read a story like this and think to themselves, well, Joseph kind of earned it. Shouldn't Joseph have gotten more of a reward? I mean, he had to suffer and then I know he got to rule in Egypt, but wouldn't his line have been better? In other words, if I had my say, I could probably improve God's plan, and I bet He's happy He has me. As though grace is only for those who couldn't merit it, but maybe grace is only less necessary for those who are kind of meriting it. The story of the line of Judah tells us that Reuben, through custom and being firstborn, does not get the, not get the line in the inheritance, joseph through his righteousness and suffering doesn't earn it and judah who does get it does not receive this because or he doesn't receive it certainly because he didn't earn it he receives it in spite of his sin see all of us no matter how impressed we are with ourselves have to open our hands and let god's grace be free This is the ultimate test of God's sovereignty in the world. Does He really get to decide? Is He free to show mercy on whom He will show mercy? Have we taken our righteousness, our little bits of earning, our pride that we did it right or a little bit better, and are we setting that under the cross as well? If you read the history of God's redeeming, what you have to say again and again and again and again is salvation is of the Lord... And it's his prerogative, and we did not determine his action. And what I don't want you to hear here, uh, human responsibility is real. Your actions matter. It doesn't mean give up and do whatever you want. Live like Judah, he ends up fine. No, no, there are consequences to sin. And righteousness is a delightful thing, a good thing, a God-glorifying thing, but it is not definitive in the redemptive plan of God. God has orchestrated life in such a way so that He can save and He will receive all the glory. God has orchestrated the redemption in Jesus through the cross in such a way that all of us must come equally together, humbly, with open hands and say, I can only receive. God have mercy on me. This is what the Pharisees hated about Jesus. They had a little older brother to them, No, 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 Well, why would you tell the Gentiles they can come? We've earned it. But grace doesn't allow anything like that. Grace tells the downtrodden and the helpless and the sinful God can redeem, come to Him. And grace tells the proud and the righteous and the earner, set down your man-made crowns. You must receive God in all of His fullness and freeness, He loves to give freely, but not because you're impressive. And when we admit this, and we're all on level ground, then we're made new and given life that comes through the line of Judah. That's the story. I think that's why these, these odd things are inserted, the real history of His people